1: Softly, gently, night unfurls its splendor. Gasp it, sense it, tremulous and tender. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean.
0: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
1: Why am I banging out some Phantom of the Opera there, Caroline?
0: I don't know. It's Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> no i i i forbid andrew lloyd weber in this house unless it's absolutely necessary
0: but you sang it like sweeney todd from sweeney todd so it's close enough for you yes
1: yeah, specifically the uh michael Cerverus and patty lupone revival
0: maybe we'll be mentioning that soon in this episode
1: oh gosh what a tease i uh, listeners <laughs> i truly come into the uh a, a carry episode totally blind uh so that's <laughs> that's great and now much like excited. this
0: relationship
1: <laughs> um well love is blind my dear thanks you're welcome uh Caroline what are we talking about this week what's the subject uh of our episode and why did I just subject the listeners to uh to my voice once again
0: Well, Sean, as I know that you definitely know by now, I was heavily involved in the drama club scene during my high school years. What? No. (laughs) Yeah, I think I did something like 13 different shows, including directing two. Um, I think the only one I missed was the first musical, and I did every other show that was available. So, yeah, it was a big, big part of my life growing up. I still act sometimes if I can. Um, My last thing was in 2017, I think, right before I met you.
1: Yeah, it's weird. You'd think all of your friends would be theater nerds.
0: Yeah, and they are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, you know, high school is the theater nerds and uh, college was the film nerds. So I have a very interesting group around me that I'm grateful for every day. But in my time in Drama Club especially, I got accustomed to all sorts of theater-related traditions and superstitions. These include not saying the word Macbeth in the theater itself. (gasps) The Scottish play! Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you say the Scottish play instead of Macbeth, because saying the word is bad luck if you're in a show. Um, another superstition is not saying good luck before a performance, especially on opening night. Yeah. You say break a leg because good luck is bad luck, apparently. Uh, and a bad dress rehearsal foretells a good opening, which is probably something that people would just tell each other to make them feel better. That's
1: a rain on your wedding day. If I've ever heard one
0: bird poops on your head.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's (laughs) just to, just to make kids feel better about the bird poop on their head.
0: Exactly. Theater is almost as superstitious a thing as sports, which makes a lot of sense because they're both rooted in ancient Greco-Roman traditions, which themselves were rooted in myth and magic.
1: And I'll add that for more on baseball and sports-related curses, listeners can go back to our Curse of the Bambino episode.
0: On Patreon.
1: Oh, on Patreon. Yeah. Well, even better.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Theaters themselves, much like a sports stadium or a locker room, they're a place of intense energy. Whether you're someone who gets method by diving into a character's inner turmoil, or you're in the middle of experiencing the heady days of tech week where all you do is eat, sleep, and breathe your play or your musical that you're in. It's really unlike any other hobby or or art in the relationships it creates and the emotional atmosphere it fosters. So much of art is a solitary act, whether you're painting or writing. You're not usually doing these things with other people around you in that immediate moment or feeding off of that energy. But in theater, you kind of have to.
1: Yeah, theater and music are both great that way. Mm -hmm. Really social art.
0: Yeah, I mean, as an actor especially, and I can kind of talk from both sides of it. I think as a director, it's a little different, but you become attached to your castmates in like a really specific way. And even the theater itself, um, even if you never see these people or this theater again, for those few weeks of rehearsal and performance, they're like your closest compatriots. Sometimes your worst enemies. (laughs) Uh, so it's no wonder that many theaters have legends of hauntings, especially since performers create such deep attachments to them in life. Mm. All of that to say that this week I'll be taking us through some stories of the most haunted theaters in the world, courtesy of the book Haunted Theaters, apropos, by Tom Ogden. Because I, as your resident drama ghoul, trademark, <laughs> I feel rather uniquely qualified to do so.
1: Turn your face away from the garish light of day. Turn your thoughts away from cold, unfeeling light.
0: Man, this phantom really really got fucked up at some point. His throat got all messed up.
1: He's also a barber who's murdering. You're you're right. It is just Sweeney Sweeney now.
0: (laughs) So my friends and Sean... (laughs) Sit back, relax, turn on the ghost light, and settle in for some theatrical spookiness. Let's start with the most famous theater community in the world. Broadway!
1: That's, isn't that Hollywood you're Whatever,
0: doing? Whatever! Broadway! <laughs> it's Broadway! <laughs> yeah, but isn't there like a one... No, it's... Singular sensation! There's no business like show business. There's
1: no business, I know. Hell no.
0: Yeah. The term Broadway, in reference to theater, encompasses the theatrical performances which are presented in the 41 professional theaters, each with 500 or more seats, located in the theater district and the Lincoln Center along the 13-mile road, which is weird calling it a road it's known as broadway in midtown manhattan new york city new york obviously yeah this area was established as a theater community as far back as 1750 when actor managers walter murray and thomas keen established a resident theater company that seated about 280 audience members at the theater on nassau street So since the 1700s, the community has only grown, and Broadway has been continuously operating as a theater haven for some understandable pauses for events like the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, natural disasters like Hurricane Sandy, workers' strikes and pandemics like... Well, COVID-19. The
1: one that just finished, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, but Broadway, it finished for Broadway, at least the first round, because aren't they back?
0: They're going to be back in September, hopefully, knock on wood. Oh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Together with London's West End, a.k.a. basically England's Broadway, it represents the highest commercial level of live theater in the English-speaking world. So, of course, with such a long and rich history, including many fiery personalities... There are more than a few ghost stories. One of the most famous, and one that you'll find if you just look up like haunted Broadway, New York, or whatever, is surrounding David Belasco and his namesake Belasco Theater. Belasco had opened his first theater, the Stuyvesant? Stuyvesant? Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant in October 1907 on West 44th Street. Belasco was a producer, playwright, and director that was most concerned with providing a spectacle to audiences, and his theater was most of, was one of the most grand in the world at that time, certainly in America. There were Tiffany lamps everywhere, elaborately hand-carved woodwork, 18 large painted murals by artist Everett Shin. I mean, this place was fancy as fuck.
1: You know, there um. They're doing some renovations to the to the Regal down the street, and I hope uh, <laughs> I hope they're putting in a couple of ceiling murals.
0: For you know? sure, yeah.
1: And Tiffany, you said Tiffany chandeliers?
0: Uh, Tiffany lamps everywhere, yeah. Yeah, that would be nice.
1: That would be nice at the <laughs> Regal.
0: Inside the Stuyvesant, there were about a thousand seats with clear, unobstructed views of the stage. Belasco had a vision, and his quirkiness, along with his penchant for wearing all black and dressing in a cleric's collar.
1: Oh wow! I'm really glad I came. Uh, really glad this guy came along so much earlier, or else uh, ah. he would have stole my girl.
0: <laughs> this nabbed him the nickname of the Bishop of Broadway. Eventually, in 1910, the theater was renamed the Belasco Theater, and it's called that to this day. You may have even seen a show or two there. The most recent Residents of the Blasco, were the play Network in uh, 2018, and Screenings of the Irishman, which were the first uh, film screenings held at the Blasco in 2019. And then you know COVID happened and all that. <coughs> right, yes. So David yes, <laughs> David Belasco was incredibly passionate about the theater that bore his name. He spent most of the last 20 years of his life inside the building, writing, producing, directing its shows. He was always there. He was tremendously emotionally and creatively fulfilled by his work. And he died after a pretty happy life at the age of 71 in May 1931. But it seems that David Belasco never quite took his final bow.
1: Well, it doesn't sound like he had any unfinished business, Carrie.
0: It's not always about unfinished business. Sometimes it's about a place that you were very connected to in life, or a person, or whatever.
1: And I just couldn't leave behind
0: all this Tiffany! <laughs> Apparently he was a straight man, but we'll get to that. The Bishop of Broadway? <laughs> Apparently. Almost immediately after his death, stage crew and actors started seeing his spirit, spirit all over the theater. He looked much like he had in life. He had white tousled hair with a black shirt or collar, or sometimes a monk's robe. Sometimes Belasco would be seen... Wait, in
1: was the monk's robe an affectation in life, too? Yes,
0: yeah. Wow. He's very eccentric, this fellow. Uh, sometimes he's seen sitting alone in the balcony, or he would even go backstage to shake hands with the actors and give them a word of encouragement or some advice. So he's, he's the director's always directing. Love it. More than one actress hilariously complained that a man dressed as a Catholic priest or pastor had pinched her ass. <laughs> and then disappeared.
1: I mean, that had to be a ghost because no Catholic priest has ever gotten up to anything <laughs> indecent, obviously.
0: Well, Belasco certainly had loved whining and wooing his actresses. So it does make a lot of sense he wouldn't want to stop for a pesky little thing like his own death. Late at night, after the last show and the last of the audience had left the building, crew members and other personnel sometimes have reported hearing laughing, singing, footsteps around the building, sometimes even the sound of a raging phantom party, like in that movie Tower of Terror.
1: Yes, the Disney Channel original movie. Or ABC Family.
0: I think it was like on ABC. I don't remember. I remember watching it on TV, but they would always have it on Disney Channel.
1: Right. Well, we can be sure that it had Steve Guttenberg and The Goot. And uh, what's her name?
0: Kirsten Dunst.
1: Kirsten Dunst.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Belasco loved throwing big, boisterous parties in the theater. So these are said to be kind of remnants from those days. For years, the stage doorman claimed that each day at 4 p.m., his dog, who apparently kept him company on the job, which is very cute, (laughs) would growl directly at an invisible presence every day at the same time. And, of course, it was about this time of day that Belasco was known in life to take a leisurely stroll around the building. Wow. That was like his rounds. So every day
1: the dog looks at the same spot and growls? For how long do we know?
0: Looked. I don't know. Over time, the ghost's appearance, which could also be sensed in the smell of his signature cigars or in the curtain rising and falling on its own, came to be considered a lucky omen. He even apparently showed up some opening nights in his old favorite private box, which was kept empty.
1: I'm reminded of the Walt Disney ghost, you know, living above the Main Street firehouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and From I'm episode 38. And I'm also reminded of the... There was an ass-pinch ghost at Disney, too. Remember? the um, (laughs) In Pirates, I think, that ghost Mm -hmm. will pinch an ass or two.
0: Might be the same guy.
1: Yeah, or maybe when (laughs) people are in dark rooms, they'll just pinch an ass or two.
0: Well, what if you're in a dark room with no one else? Who's pinching then, Sean? Who's pinching then? It seems Belasco had the same... Oh, it was me.
1: I was pinching my own ass.
0: (laughs) The same exacting tastes in death as in his life. In 1970, the avant-garde theatrical review *O Calcutta* transferred to the theater, and with it, the sightings of Blasco's ghost abruptly stopped.
1: He had a problem with *O Calcutta*.
0: <laughs> well, this might have been because the show was pretty sexual, and it even included full frontal nudity, which was like very scandalous for 1970.
1: You just said this guy was like casting couches, all, all uh, casting couching all his actresses.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know if it was a casting couch situation. But, I mean, you know, he might have been one of those types that enjoys the pleasures of carnal acts during his lifetime, but is affronted by their depiction on his beloved stage. You know, like a hypocrite. (laughs) (laughs) For the next 30 years, reports of seeing Belasco's spirit were rare until 2003, when the show Enchanted April had its run in the theater and he was seen once again.
1: Wait, was that like horny review on for all of those years? No, no, no.
0: He was just so bothered. He's He's like, like, I'm out for 30 years. And
1: I won't be returning for quite some time, (laughs) sir.
0: (laughs) In 2004, several cast members of Dracula the Musical, which I am crushed that I missed. I'm sure it was bad.
1: Yeah, boy. How do you how do you do Dracula the musical and not get Jim Steinman to write all well, the music? Well,
0: he, he did The Dance of the Vampires, which is the same thing.
1: Of course, turn around.
0: <laughs> That's his vampire musical. Uh, turn around. These cast members heard the sounds of an argument from a disembodied man and woman that seemed to come from behind a large portrait of David Belasco that hangs near the stage door. When the painting was removed, there was nothing there.
1: Like not, he, they were even. wondering
0: if there was like a speaker or something.
1: Right. I was hoping it would be like there's someone pe- peeking through the painting's eyes. When they uh, take yeah, it just, away. just, just two guy, little holes. Just a guy there.
0: <laughs> During the run of Passing Strange in 2008, actor Daniel Breaker, who most recently played Aaron Burr in Broadway's Hamilton, and who I think was actually Burr when we saw it in 2017,
1: Sean. Oh, he did not have the voice of a...
0: Leslie Odom Jr.?
1: Right, which nobody does. No, um, but, you can't fault him for that. But he was—if this is the guy—he was, I thought, a better actor in the role than Leslie great Adam actor. Jr. He very yeah. funny.
0: He told Playbill Radio an interesting story. One evening, he was putting on his makeup in his dressing room mirror, and he saw an old man with white hair sitting behind him, just watching him silently. When Breaker turned around to be like, "Uh, what are you doing in my dressing room? Get out!" The man who resembled nobody that he needed to be working on the show was just gone. This could just be a very fast creep. I I assume the door was closed and everything. Speedy and he, creep. <laughs> you would know. Breaker reported the incident to the house manager and they were like, oh, you just saw David Blasco. Oh, casual. very calmly.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's our ghost owner. <laughs>
0: The Legend of Belasco's Ghost is incredibly prevalent in Broadway lore. It's mentioned in the theater's Wikipedia page and on several Broadway.com and Playbill articles. You know, they have to get that Halloween content out. There's always something like the most uh, haunted Broadway theaters, you know. Even in the show, Hedwig, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which ran at the theater in 2014, and I'm sure very much upset Belasco yeah, had, the character of Hedwig within the show briefly discusses the history of the Belasco theater and references the ghost of David Belasco. And Hedwig says that if the ghost appears on a show's opening night, the show is blessed and asks audience members in one of the boxes to tell her if the ghost appears and this is probably that old favorite private box that he had that he would appear in as a ghost.
1: I will no I won't haunt this theater again until that woman stops singing about her penis. <laughs>
0: So maybe uh, David Velasco's has just been wandering the dark halls of his theater since Broadway's shut down in March 2020. Just antsy for another show to start playing.
1: Just pinching his own ass.
0: <laughs> so we'll see if his spirit makes an impatient appearance when the stage lights finally come back up, as we said, hopefully, next month.
1: That was wood. It was pressed composite.
0: I knocked on it. Next, we have some stories from Broadway's Eugene O'Neill Theater, specifically from one of your favorite productions, Sean, the 2005 revival of Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd.
1: I do love this specific show. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And Sweeney Todd in general is (sighs) it and Hamilton duke it out for my favorite musical of all time.
1: Uh, i mean H- hamilton's very very hard to beat it's, it's
0: kind of like the beatles it's like well you okay take out hamilton well, then what's your favorite
1: yeah and sweeney todd is the this is gonna be this Is gonna hit weird carrie but see if you can follow me sweeney todd is the the, the good hamilton the bad and the of barbers it's the good the bad and the ugly of musicals that's what i think it is
0: it's, is it your favorite show like not just that revival just like any sweeney todd
1: Hamilton is my favorite okay. show.
0: No, I'm saying, like the Beatles, take it out of the equation.
1: I think it's probably Sweeney Todd. I, you have to understand, I really love West Side Story. <laughs> um, falsettos, you love. I love Falsettos. Falsettos has zero low moments. Sweeney Todd is, uh, uh, yeah, you know, you got to give her time to breathe. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so again, just like the good, the bad, and the ugly, grand and sweeping, and operatic and beautiful, and dark. also dark and cruel, um, and occasionally funny. It's very good.
0: Mm-hmm. The twenty the two thousand five revival starred Patty Lupone and Michael Cerveris, and it was I a, had him, yeah, him of the growly voice, and it was set within a mental a mental institution, so,
1: and all of the. Not all of the, uh, well, the the band was on stage.
0: No, the actors played their own instruments. Yes, okay, yeah. so yeah, the actors played,
1: mm-hmm. all the actors played their own instruments, uh, so there wasn't a band in the pit, they all just had, like, um, guitars and violins and things on stage. Patty
0: yeah, Patty LuPone played the tuba, which is very funny.
1: Yes. <laughs> so did she have to learn the tuba for that show?
0: I'm not sure. But I know she had to know it. <laughs> This extremely spooky atmosphere maybe helped stir up the O'Neill's resident ghosts. Donna Lynn Champlin, who played Pirelli in the production, reported to Playbill that, quote, We believe there are at least two ghosts at the Eugene O'Neill, one male and one female. During previews, things would randomly fall from the upstage prop shelf, sometimes dangerous things like gardening shears, when no one was remotely near it. Actors' hair gets tugged every once in a while, and they have heard their characters' names whispered in their ears on stage when no one's next to them. (laughs) There's a strong smell of lilacs sometimes downstage left. My whistle disappeared from my bloody lab coat pocket, which never leaves the stage, and was found in the basement in the dead rack of clothes. Which I think is, like, stuff that they're not using anymore.
1: And the bloody lab coat would be... She's not using bloody as a swear word. No. She's bloody like that was the costume.
0: Yeah, and like she said, it never leaves the stage. Uh, They found it weeks later because they moved the rack and it just fell on the ground by itself. Patty's dressing room has doors that open and close on their own. She also thought she had stepped backward onto her friend's foot uh, because she trot on a foot it seems i felt it so she said excuse me her friend said what for and patty turned and her friend was like two feet away from her no one else was there wow mm-hmm. champlin's co-star merwin ford also added quote i set up a cot to take a nap between rehearsal and a show and jokingly asked out loud for a wake-up call Sure enough at 6:30 I was awakened by a hard slap on the bottom of my shoes that almost sent my head crashing up into the bottom of the counter that I had placed my cot under. No one was in the room but me.
1: Now a slap that that's a pretty aggressive uh, ghost.
0: Like, wake up. Wake up. <laughs> So who are the resident ghosts of the O'Neill?
1: That's a good question. And also, was it only this production that was plagued by these ghosts?
0: That has like the most reports just because they both said in this interview and they were like stars of the show. So there is, isn't really a consensus on who these two spirits could be if they are a man and a woman. Maybe one of them is Eugene O'Neill himself. hmm the theater was named for this uh, man who is a, was a prolific playwright and Nobel laureate. And it was named this in 1959 after his tragic death after years of struggle with illness and addiction in 1953. So maybe he just sticks around the theater bearing his name, watching hit shows like The Full Monty, <laughs> Spring Awakening, and its current feature, The Book of Mormon.
1: But he, he was very familiar with the book of Sweeney Todd because he knows all the <laughs> character names.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um,
1: he knows everybody's call times because he's slapping them awake.
0: Listen, what else does he have to do? He's dead. But I do wonder what Eugene O'Neill would think of the Book of Mormon.
1: It, there wouldn't be as much pearl clutching as. Um,
0: <laughs> Belasco.
1: Yeah, Belasco with. Uh, uh, what was even the
0: show? Oh, Calcutta.
1: No, but what was the modern show that came through? Well, it was oh, Hed- Hed- Hedwig. Hedwig, Hedwig, but I don't know. I
0: don't know what his reaction to that was. Uh so yeah, we don't know.
1: What are you What do you think of that gender bent Pirelli in that uh, 2005 revival?
0: Uh, I don't really have a problem with it. I don't think it makes sense in the context of the time period. It's so weird. But also it's but the, they whole, also... the whole th- context of the show in the revival is like a mental institution so I mean who knows
1: but they call him Mr. Pirelli yeah it's just so it's distractingly I mean, weird
0: it would have to be something where it was and I, I saw a version of this revival at my school back in like 2011 2012 um it would have to be a situation where this is one of the inmates at the asylum acting out the role but I don't really remember how they presented it so, yeah, that's Broadway. And after the break, we'll go to some other very haunted theaters. Wait,
1: what's your rush? What's your array? You gave me such a fright. I thought you was a ghost. Off a minute, can't you sit? Sit you down, sit. All the that I <laughs> Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
0: Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store, it could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where better help comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient, so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com it scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy.
1: Welcome back. When last we left you, we had just gotten through the potential specters at the Eugene (laughs) O'Neill Theater uh, and all the problems they caused during the 2005 revival of Sweeney Todd. Mm -hmm. Because we're talking haunted theaters. Carrie, where are we going next?
0: Well, now we're going beyond Broadway. We've actually spoken before about another haunted American theater. This is the Klein Theater at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. We talked about that on the Ghosts of Gettysburg episode.
1: With your dad, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, this is haunted by a spirit referred to as the General.
1: Oh, yes. I know him. You go online, you save some time and money on car insurance. Stupid. Yeah, my friend Shaq told me.
0: <laughs> the General apparently apparently enjoys sitting in on performances of the student productions, which is very cute. But there's another theater that's deeply tied to American history and world-changing American tragedy.
1: I don't know the name of the theater, but (laughs) it's definitely where Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth, right?
0: Spoilers! We're not going to go too deeply into it today, because I'm sure there's a whole episode on this event in the future. But on April 14th, 1865, stage actor and Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth... And we don't
1: talk enough about his acting.
0: (laughs) Well... A little overshadowed. Uh, he entered a performance of Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Ford's C. Theater. Son mm-hmm. of a bitch. And he shot sitting President Abraham Lincoln in the back of the head as Lincoln laughed at a witty line from the play. Ha <laughs> ha oh, Son of a bitch. <laughs> Booth then jumped down from the president's box onto the stage. Six ember Yep, he yelled something like that, which means, thus always to tyrants. He landed awkwardly, hurting his leg, and he fleed from the stage through a side door, making his escape via a horse he had positioned previously in the alleyway.
1: What a dramatic old queen.
0: mm mm-hmm. The next morning, Lincoln died, and Booth followed him on April 26th, perishing from complications from a gunshot wound to the neck.
1: Didn't he, um... Didn't Booth, like, badly twist or break one of his legs when he jumped off the balcony? I
0: couldn't get the exact thing of, like, how he, like, how bad he hurt it, if it was really broken or if that's just kind of the apocryphal thing, but it had to be set, so... Oh, then yeah, that's a break. It, like, yeah.
1: If you have to set it, that's a that's a bone break. So uh, yeah, I just love the idea of like he thinks he really thinks he's the Lone Ranger or Zorro or sure. something, mm-hmm. but he jumps. He can't jump onto a waiting horse, so he's okay, all right. I'll settle for jumping into a the box theater. to
0: a stage is a long distance to jump.
1: Yeah, as Mister Booth found out. <laughs> yeah, but he still escaped for a brief time.
0: For yeah, a little bit, and after his death. Apparently, he returned to the site of his infamous act and has stayed there ever since. John Wilkes Booth and his brother Edwin were popular actors of the time, but Edwin was much, much more famous than his brother and often left John in his very long shadow.
1: Did um, did Edwin's career dry up at all after this?
0: I don't believe so. Um, he was actually commonly referred to as like the finest actor of his century. Uh, and one of the, the best good
1: booth <laughs> yeah. the guy who didn't kill lincoln
0: yeah that's that's how he referred to himself he was also um famously one of the best hamlets of all time apparently so he was he was pretty hot shit and the booth brothers and their other brother junius who was another actor what a thanksgiving that would be uh they were all good friends with john t ford the owner of ford's theater John Wilkes Booth even frequently had his mail delivered to the theater when he was on tour, and Lincoln himself had previously seen John Wilkes Booth in a performance of The Marble Heart in 1863. So Booth had a real history with this theater, which is something I didn't really know before.
1: Wouldn't it be great if, like, the last thought that went through Abraham Lincoln's head was like, is that that mediocre actor I saw here last <laughs> it
0: was, time? He, no, he was behind him, so I don't know if he saw even who it was, uh, even when Booth jumped down.
1: Oh, shit, is that that guy?
0: <laughs> so Booth already had a deep attachment to Ford Cedar, and he really sealed the deal with the assassination. Just days after Robert E. Lee's surrender to the Union at Appomattox, Booth would snatch away the triumphant president from his people in an act of anger and revenge. And he really didn't get to celebrate the victory of the Civil War. This violent act is likely what keeps Booth's spirit connected to the theater even now. So shortly after the assassination, photographer Matthew Brady, who took many of the famous photos of the Civil War that we know today, Mm -hmm. those black and whites of like the soldiers dead on the battlefield and things like that, He captured a series of archival images of the inside of the playhouse, and a blur within the presidential box can be seen in one of the photos.
1: Oh my god, is it the very first orb in American history?
0: (laughs) Well, many have claimed to see a spectral figure hovering in the booth since then, so this might be an early example of spirit photography. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Disembodied footsteps are sometimes heard on the stairs, particularly along the route that Booth took that fateful April night in the kind of, like, back hallways. At times, the sound of laughter or sobbing will be heard, but there's no known source. The front curtain, again, like uh, the Belasco, I think, will sometimes raise and lower on its own. And many actors performing at the theater, and I think they still do kind of tribute shows of Our American Cousin to this day, they attest to the fact that there is an evil, invisible presence that they can clearly sense hanging over the diagonal path Booth ran across the stage to the back door when he escaped.
1: I think it's weird to do a tribute performance of (laughs) Our American Cousin.
0: So funny story on that. My parents went to see one of them. Long time ago, probably before I was born. Do they shoot a Lincoln in the crowd? They're just watching the show. They're you know and, you know enjoying the show as much as you can from like an old timey comedy, and then and they I think they they noticed like a reenactor or something there. I'm not quite sure of this part. I didn't check with mom on this, but in the middle of the show, Lincoln gets shot. Booth jumps down and runs away, he and that's down, and that's the end of the show. They never got the rest of the play, <laughs> but what? they weren't expecting it. They were just watching this show, and then like the reenactment happens, and that's the end.
1: It's actually I've turned around all the way on this. Now I think this is amazing. If you <laughs> if you always advertise it as just a production of our right. American cousin, and if at every performance Lincoln dies and the show ends like forty five minutes yeah. before you said it would, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's amazing and hilarious.
0: I'm pretty sure that's like that's what happened to them, and they were like. What? <laughs> I guess we got time for an ice cream cone. Shit. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, cold spots are common, even in areas without particular noticeable ventilation, like air conditioning or windows. And perhaps Booth Spirit isn't the only one restlessly roaming the theater. Hmm. Some have seen a shadowy figure wearing a distinctive stovepipe hat. Stop. Materialize and disappear. But Lincoln's most famous haunt is the White House. And I'm sure we'll talk about that sometime, too.
1: Yeah, that that, Well, yes, of
0: course. That doesn't surprise me at all. But maybe this isn't even Lincoln. Because the theater saw another horrible tragedy uh, after the assassination. And this one took place on June 9th, 1893, when the front of the building suddenly collapsed, killing 22 people. Oh, my God. Strangely, this happened on the same day Edwin Booth... As we know, John's famous older brother mm-hmm. was laid to rest. He had just died.
1: That's a tenuous connection.
0: It's just interesting. It I, is. I said strangely. I didn't say, "Ooky spookily. It's weird. Damningly. <laughs> America isn't the only home to theater ghosts, of course. I would never be so bold as to claim that. So let's go the, to visit the Parisian Phantom of the Opera.
1: What if, uh, Abra- you know Abraham Lincoln uh, had an undefeated professional, sorry, an undefeated amateur wrestling record?
0: Yeah, I know that because you told me that like sometime. Like
1: 300 and oh, or something like that? Mm-hmm. What if he's haunting the White House because his unfinished business is no one ever pinned him?
0: I don't think he wants to be pinned. No, this
1: is a movie. <laughs> he doesn't want to be pinned. He'll fight you tooth and nail, but and he, if, and his not be able And if that's the case, you think rest.
0: Teddy Roosevelt wouldn't have been able to pin him? No,
1: I don't think Teddy Roosevelt is open to the spiritual.
0: Interesting. We'll have to look that up.
1: So you got to get a president in there who's a good cross-pollination. you got to get a president who's at the cross-section of sensitive to spirits and also just a, you know, just a... Just a banger on the map
0: Yeah, I feel like if it was something like, oh man, like Harry Ima- Truman. I imagine think, Barack Obama to... and Abraham there Lincoln playing like a basketball game.
1: Well, Barack would win. Abraham Lincoln had never heard of basketball,
0: right? But I think I don't know. I don't think Barack's the wrestling type.
1: No, Abraham. Would Maybe win Gerald that. Ford. We have to give them a neutral. He was a football player. Barack Obama know. likes basketball. We have to give them a neutral game to play. Ping pong.
0: Maybe just a foot race. I think
1: they're pink, long skinnies. They're both long skinnies, but Abraham Lincoln doesn't have the benefit of a modern, like, diet and workout regimen. I think well. Barack's killing him in a sprint. I truly do.
0: I don't know. We'll have to think on this.
1: Although Abraham died younger.
0: <laughs> Great. So let's go visit the Parisian Phantom of the Opera.
1: In sleep he came to me. Now I'm singing the girls part that way too.
0: Yeah. In dreams he came. <laughs> the half-masked phantom of Gaston Leroux's 1910 novel and Andrew Lloyd Webber's long-running musical Boo, apparently isn't purely a work of fiction. In fact, Leroux even writes the opera ghost really existed in the prologue to his story, which is set to at the Palais Garnier in Paris, France.
1: Yeah, sure. And Fargo starts out, the following is based on real events.
0: (laughs) It was. No, it wasn't. It was based on an actual story of a man hiring a hitman to like chop up his wife in a wood chipper.
1: That Fargo title card says, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Everything else is exactly (laughs) as it occurred.
0: I'm just saying it was technically based on a true story scream is technically based on a true story but doesn't mean the whole story is true based very loose right
1: but i'm just the The other
0: the other stuff is bullshit but i'm just telling you it is actually based on a story no it's just great the
1: coen brothers go out of their way to say everything else is exactly as it occurred
0: anyway he said the opera ghost really existed so not based on a true story he really existed okay The Palais Garnier Opera House, built in 1875, has been called probably the most famous opera house in the world, a symbol of Paris like Notre Dame Cathedral, the Louvre, or the Sacré-Cœur, I didn't take French, Basilica. (laughs)
1: The thing is, when you're the most popular opera house in the world... still I thought
0: that would be Sydney, but I guess because of it being part of Phantom of the Opera, maybe this one's a little more popular. Well,
1: this one's probably visited by more people just by virtue of it being easier to get to.
0: Yes, true that. What's interesting about the Palais is, like LaRue's story, it actually does have a spooky lake deep beneath the opera house floor. A legit lake, not just like, oh, it gets a little moist down there sometimes.
1: This is something that only exists in universal horror films of the 30s.
0: This is real. Charles Garnier, uh, who the place was eventually named after, the Palais architect, ran into a problem while digging its foundation. He hit an arm of the Seine, Seine? Seine. Seine River below the ground, and no matter how hard they all tried to pump out the water, it just kept rushing back in. So, obviously, moving to a different location would have been a friggin' nightmare after already starting.
1: So, accidental lake. This wasn't like <laughs> rich guy folly. I wanted an Olympic no, no, swimming pool No, this is an accidental
0: lake, but uh, turned into a purposeful lake. Garnier was very good at what he did, and he adjusted, creating cisterns to control the water, and it made sort of like an artificial lake. And it's still there. It's used by the Paris Fire Department for training to this day. I mean you can go see it. I don't know if you can go on like a tour and see it, but like it's there. Another eerie truth from the story is that of the falling chandelier. And you may know this even oh, if you boy. don't if you're not really familiar with the story of Phantom of the Opera, yeah, especially and, the musical.
1: Andrew Lloyd Webber only he needs a gimmick to make the show work, <laughs> and in Phantom of the Opera the gimmick is a giant chandelier falls at the end of end of the first act or beginning of the second act.
0: I think something like that. Yeah. Um And there's also the lake in it, too. But, yeah, the giant chandelier falls to the stage. I'm pretty sure it's like a big act one finale. Like, oh, the phantom!
1: Yeah. The only way he could top himself for his next show was uh, putting everybody on roller skates. So, Yeah.
0: In reality, in May 1896, the grand chandelier really did fall. And it fell into the audience, killing a woman named Madame Chaumette. So it was really like a deadly, horrible accident involving the chandelier. Possibly weirdest of all, Larue apparently had also heard a rumor during a visit to the opera house in 1908 that one of Garnier's assistant architects named Eric had requested to live underneath the palais, just like the eventual phantom of Larue's story. And he hadn't been seen since. No bones, no body, even nothing. He just went down there and never came back up.
1: Oh, oh, was he depressed?
0: I don't know. Maybe he was just really into artificial lakes under opera houses. I don't know.
1: Pockets full of rocks.
0: (laughs) The Phantom was named Eric in the novel. I don't think it's ever mentioned in the musical. And he was detailed by Leroux to have been a contractor for the real lead architect, Charles Garnier. So that's like the backstory of the Phantom in the book, or part of it. Over the years, many at the Palais, including both performers and audience members, have claimed to have experienced and witnessed a variety of strange events. Some say that they have seen a pale and crippled figure wandering through the opera house, ghostly-like. Mm-hmm. Others relate the story of an apparent jilted older woman who roams the streets outside the opera house in search of her phantom former lover.
1: Oh, so that's based on the idea that, like, the Phantom of the Opera story happened and this is... I don't know
0: who the jilted older woman's supposed to be, but they seem to know this, that she's jilted and she's old and she's pissed. Get used to it. (laughs) I'm here, I'm jilted and I'm old. Get used to it. It's said that on LaRue's deathbed, he claimed that the theater's ghost really did exist. But whether this is true, we'll never know. Mm. Our final unresting place for theater phantoms. <laughs> thank you. Caroline. Takes us to London, fittingly, the town where Shakespeare himself tread the boards and tested out drafts of classic plays like Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. mm mm-hmm. So we'll go to the most haunted theater in the world, named so by our reference book, Haunted Theaters, so it must be legit.
1: It has to be true. It's in a book.
0: It's the most haunted of all the haunted theaters. Someone has
1: put this on a page. It's fact.
0: Done. This is the Theatre Royal on London's Drury Lane in the West End.
1: Oh, I know a muffin man who lives there.
0: Yeah, (laughs) he's next door. This particular building is the most recent in a line of four theaters which were built at the same location, the earliest of which dated back to 1663. So obviously they had to rebuild and, you know, it's always on the same place. So this is basically the oldest theater site in London still in use. Since World War II, the theater has mostly hosted long runs of popular musicals like Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, 42nd Street, and Miss Saigon. Which is the theater's longest-running show?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, another gimmick show that's got the helicopter.
0: Oh, speaking of gimmick shows, it's currently owned by aforementioned composer Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> he owns the theater.
1: Great! They can put on Cats as many times as they want.
0: Well, not not soon because it'll next be hosting the musicals, the musical Frozen's London debut starting in September. Hopefully. <laughs> This is another theater that has its own Wikipedia article uh, section on its hauntings. So I always think that's kind of a pretty good indicator of how haunted a place is at least said to be. Because Wikipedia is really the most basic source of information on anything. So if it's there, then it must be a pretty popular legend. Mm -hmm. In 1848 or possibly 1850, renovations were taking place in the theater. During these renovations, a previously unknown empty chamber was found behind one of the walls. Empty, of course, aside from a skeleton. <laughs> yeah.
1: So someone got cask of Amontillado in the walls of the theater?
0: I'm not sure if, if that's how this skeleton died or if it was just hidden there with the body or whatever. This hidden body seemed to date back to the 1700s due to, like, clothing and age, but there was really no knowledge or hypothesis of who this could be the remains of, at least then. The bones were giving a Christian burial nearby, and all was well until the ghost started showing up.
1: And this didn't happen until after this body was removed from the walls?
0: Yes, but we're not sure if this is the spirit of whoever was the unnamed skeleton because the appearances only started in like the 1930s, which is a long time after the body was found and buried.
1: Yeah, but maybe it's kind of an opposite movie, horror movie logic thing. Go on. Oh, a long time after it was found and buried. Yes. So there was decades in between where... Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's like
0: 80 I... years or something.
1: I thought maybe they had triggered the, uh, the event by...
0: Well, some people think it is still that spirit, because the Phantom always appears in the area where the renovations were being undertaken, and it always begins its stroll by the spot in the wall where the hidden chamber was, or I guess is, located? I don't know if they filled it in totally. They definitely bricked it back up. The Phantom is called the Man in Grey, as he's always dressed in a long gray cloak with the hint of a sword— Or maybe something else, (laughs) protruding from underneath. He's
1: he's just happy to see you.
0: (laughs) Uh, He also wears knee-length breeches, ruffled sleeves, buckled shoes, or maybe riding boots, a powdered wig, and a tricorner hat, which he's sometimes holding. So this time period of clothing seems to match with the 1700s, which they thought the body was from. This could have been a young dandy who was killed and then hidden during a fight over one of the young actresses appearing on the theater royal stage.
1: Ah, the missing dandy.
0: But this seems to be just more of an urban legend okay. than anything with like, there was a young dandy. Oh, there's never a name attached to the dandy. No, just dandy. The man in gray always shows up during the daytime, which is strange for a ghost. Not not as ooky spooky. Uh, usually between nine a.m. and six p.m. or so, and normally only during the rehearsals for a new show.
1: And uh, normally only for shows where the costumes include like revolutionary garb. <laughs> like this guy no. only showed up during the production of Hamilton. No,
0: but they, you know, the actors and management are usually thrilled to see him, even if they are a little spooked, because his presence, uh, as legend goes, indicates that the show is going to be a big hit. So it's kind of like, come on, Man in Grey, let's do this thing.
1: That's a classic bird poop on your head situation. Mm
0: -hmm. Dandy it up, boy. Once in a while, he does come back to see an official performance. He usually just hangs out for rehearsals. Morgan Davies, one of the stars of 1950's run of Carousel, spotted a figure in a long gray cloak with ruffled cuffs sitting in an empty box during a performance. The figure stood up and raised an arm, and at this point, Davies realized that the arm was transparent.
1: If you want me to believe that a performance of Carousel had an open box in the West End in the fifties, it
0: was—I <laughs> don't know. Maybe they kept it, but I don't know.
1: I'm just kidding. I don't know what the attendance <laughs> was like in London. Oh, you're not I mean, an but... expert in that. No, sounded good though. <laughs>
0: The Man in Grey isn't the only ghost of the theater royal. After all, one spirit would hardly make a place the most haunted theater in the world.
1: No, based on the other theaters we've heard about, you would need at least two.
0: (laughs) Another one is said to be Charles Macklin, an Irish actor with a terrible temper. Macklin got into an argument with and killed fellow actor Thomas Hallam in the backstage hallway of the second incarnation of the theater in 1735.
1: Not cool, Macklin. Mm -hmm.
0: Macklin eventually got off with manslaughter and lived till he was 107 years old. Oh, it's like he stole that other guy's life. (laughs) Yeah. But apparently he came right back to the theater after he did eventually die. Eventually. His ghost is said to be tall, ugly, and thin, and walks the corridors near where he killed Hallam.
1: Which is weird, because he was a short, fat, handsome guy.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, murder really changes a person. Actress Sarah Siddons, famous for her work in Tragedies, apparently manifested in the dressing room of Camelot star Elizabeth Larner in 1960, over a century after her death in 1831. Larner saw the spirit rise from a chair, walk up to a wall, and vanish through it. And Larner immediately knew it was Siddons because she recognized her from an oil painting that hung elsewhere in the theater. Mm -hmm. So that explains why she knew who it was. Multiple actresses have been guided by invisible hands further downstage during performances to spots where they could be better seen by an audience. (laughs) It's kind of like someone directing them in a way. An unseen person was heard walking up and down the set stairs during My Fair Lady, even though they were in the middle of the stage and no one was on them at the time. And if you're familiar with the show, I think it's typical for, like, Henry Higgins' home to have a stairwell yeah. or a staircase in the middle. Um, so it's just, like, phantom footsteps up and down. Gloria Stewart, who you may know as Old Rose from the movie Titanic. It's been 84 years. oh. Ah. <laughs> She spoke of a spectral prankster taunting her during her run in Oklahoma, including one time when it moved her pay for the week from a still-locked drawer, she had locked it in the drawer at the end of the day, to her pocketbook. So the drawer was still locked. When she reopened it, it was empty. She couldn't find her paycheck anywhere. It was in her pocketbook. Hmm. Strange. Hmm. There are at least a dozen other named spirits and just kind of vaguely... Mentioned spirits that haunt Theatre Royal, including comedian Dan Leno, actor Charles Keane, managers Arthur Collins and George Cosmith, or George Grossmith, former head of cleaning staff Miss or maybe Mrs. Jordan.
1: We don't know, or she doesn't know.
0: <laughs> you know, things things are crazy, and perhaps it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, and perhaps even former King Charles II himself. Who has been spotted, and who was the one who had commissioned the building of the original theater?
1: No, oh, he I think, got his head cut
0: off. you know that's why he's a ghost, Sean <laughs> so uh, th- those are some of the big ones. Um, what are your thoughts, Sean? Do you think spirits gravitate toward emotionally dense places like theaters?
1: Uh, do I?
0: Uh, How about this? Do you think if you believed in ghosts? <laughs> uh, sure, they yeah, would.
1: It seems as good a place as any. Yeah, theaters uh, are naturally uh somewhat creepy places there's lots of dark spaces mm-hmm. lots of tight spaces in a theater
0: again lots of superstition you have Lo- something called a ghost light which is spooky
1: there's lots of like machines in a theater and even old timey theaters
0: corners I'm, to hide in i
1: mean you have cranks you have like counterweights that help that curtain go up and down mm-hmm. it's not you're not just lifting the weight of the curtain when you when you crank it up or pull the cord mm-hmm. or whatever cuz That would be really heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's counterweights and things uh, uh, that can move all kinds of stuff in a theater. Um, Catwalks. Echoes. I mean, all of the little corridors back there behind uh, backstage are going to create lots of weird little echoes. Um, I'm not surprised there were so many, like almost all of these included. People hear footsteps like just all the time.
0: Yeah. And again, theaters are places of just intense emotion, whether you're someone who is playing a character. I mean... What's the point of playing a character if they don't have, like, or writing a character if they don't have intense emotions going on, whether it's happy or sad? Um, The the joy or sadness from an audience, you know, The, the laughter at a joke or crying at a sad song. And even the stuff going on backstage, I mean, listen, theaters are horny places. Like, people are always making out or, like, having crushes on each other or having fights with each other. There's always drama because that's the name of the game, right? Yeah. Uh, Everything seems very heightened in a theater.
1: My old high school finally changed the name of its drama club to um, the mono team.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was something about drama club where like everyone was always on top of each other. Like it's not even sexual. It's just like, why is everyone giving massages to each other? It wasn't sexual for me, but I don't know. I'm sure it was for the teen boys. But, you know, it's just one of those places where like you just have this unusual closeness to people if you like them of course and and also closeness to the material and where you are and maybe that sticks around even after death
1: yeah or maybe that butt-pinching priest is just back again get
0: get out of here get out of here you
1: Do you have what it takes to go into the mind of a serial killer? Or solve a horrific case? (laughs) Hi, everybody. When you join Hunt a Killer, you receive a box full of cryptic clues mailed to you each month to test your detective skills and challenge even the most brilliant minds in a game designed to give you a journey into the mind of a killer so you can escape with the answers you need. And I... Hope you do escape. Input our code Squad 20 for 20% off when you sign up for your first subscription box at Huntakiller.com and find out if you have the guts to hunt a killer. The guts! That's the code SCARYSQUAD20, S-C-A-R-Y-S-Q-U-A-D-2-0 for 20% off at Huntakiller.com, www.huntakiller.com. Hunt a killer. Join the hunt today.
0: Let's take a trip to the Bizarre Bazaar. It's time to meet up with an old friend of the show, D.B. Cooper. Oh, (laughs) D.B. It's your boy. KOIN News reports that Cooper researcher and crime historian Eric Uless uh, conducted a week-long, weekend-long dig early this month looking for the infamous Skyjackers parachutes and briefcase, which Uless theorized might be found along the Columbia River near Portland, Oregon.
1: So he assumes Cooper's dead, it
0: sounds like. Yes, I think so. Old-school listeners to our podcast may remember from our fourth episode on D.B. Cooper that this is where, in 1980, a young boy found $6,000 of the $200,000 in marked bills Cooper was given as ransom before he jumped out of his hijacked plane, never to be seen again. Uh Ulysses, who also starred in a recent episode of History's Greatest Mysteries, titled The Final Hunt for D.B. Cooper has theorized that this is the likely resting place for Cooper and his wares, one that the FBI has never properly investigated. Why? Because this is where the money was found.
1: No, why has the FBI never investigated? Oh, that
0: I couldn't... That was like a thing that I saw a lot, but I couldn't see why he thought that they hadn't properly investigated it.
1: Yeah, they were looking in a weird spot that people later said was probably the wrong spot. Um, yeah. Go back and listen to our brush up on our D.B. Cooper episode. I'll, I'll go do the same. <laughs>
0: Ulysses will be continuing the dig on and off throughout this month and end sometime in September. It'll also be streamed using Facebook Live and the Facebook group D.B. Cooper Mystery Group.
1: Now this we will be following very closely because um, it, would interesting. Be, it would be really cool to get uh, some final answers. Although it would also be super uncool to no longer have the legend yeah. that he's just out there somewhere.
0: It's a give and take. As the FBI announced in 2016 that it's no longer investigating the D.B. Cooper case, Cooper enthusiasts like Ulyss, Ulyss? I don't know, feel it's up to them to find the answers. There's no new news from the dig so far, but we'll keep you all posted if something regarding Cooper comes to light.
1: Uh, Did this guy see Loki? Because there's your answer.
0: Yeah, Loki.
1: No spoilers? Loki was DB Cooper. It's not a fun. it's a, it's fine.
0: It's fun. It's fun and fine.
1: It's fooin. It's
0: fine. Fine. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful.
1: Yeah, special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons. That'd be Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, and Ryan Regan. I got you guys all done in one breath. And I love you all. More than one breath's worth. Each.
0: (laughs) See you next Thursday.
1: Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. And if you'd like to check Kyle out, his YouTube channel is called Music is a Verb. Lots of cool stuff going on over there.
0: This has been a production of Longboy Media. (laughs) One of Scotland's most notorious
1: unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a grot and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and
0: the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find our killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to The Fool series now, wherever you get your podcasts.